Galatians chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years? I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, 
Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of the Lord. So we are continuing our series in the book of Galatians. We have now moved past the middle point in terms of the number of chapters. Even though the book is not evenly divided by words, it is divided into six chapters. We've now moved past the third chapter, which we covered last week, and have moved on into the fourth chapter. I want to give just at the outset a very brief summary of what we've been looking at, because I'm convinced that the themes of the book of Galatians are actually just as important as the words. That is to say, Paul makes a series of arguments and he revisits idea after idea. So I'm going to just really quickly take us through Galatians as we've looked at it. First thing that we saw in chapter one is even though the chief sin of the, or the chief manifest sin of the church of Galatia was the entertaining of circumcision and the entertaining of the Judaizers who were teaching circumcision, that was not the root of that sin. That was the manifestation of the sin of the fear of man. And that's my premise really for, in my, that's my interpretive scheme for the book is Paul's writing a letter about the fear of man and simultaneously the fear of man is empowered by the uh, tendency to elevate man's opinion over God's opinion. The Galatian Christians, though receiving Paul, were giving place to teachers who were speaking contrary to the promises of God, contrary to the teachings of the apostles, contrary to the message of Christ himself, and they began to take the Judaizing teaching and they began to not only approve of these men, these false apostles, but then they put their teaching on par with God's word. And so Paul breaks into this argumentation saying, you are listening to another gospel. If someone comes and preaches you another gospel, let that person be anathema, raised up to God, to be brought before the court on charges. And so Paul is then giving the story about he himself in his own ministry did not allow men to ordain him, but was ordained as an apostle from Christ himself. Now, this isn't the model for all ordination. We have elders, we have pastors, we have teachers, deacons in the church, and those are rightly given offices. But Paul's calling, his special calling, was due to the fact that he saw Jesus Christ personally. That is, Christ revealed himself to Paul. Paul didn't look for Christ, but rather was on his way to go arrest and murder the Christians at Damascus, having official letters from the council in Jerusalem saying, this is approved of. And so as he's going to murder, as he's still breathing out murderous threats against the church, 
Jesus reveals himself to Paul. And Paul actually uses that understanding as one of the ways he teaches or reteaches the Galatians the nature of the gospel. So not only is the book of Galatians about the fear of man, but Galatians is also about how does a person come to hear and know and believe and accept the gospel. And Paul's major idea is that it is all of God's doing. That men respond with faith only after God sent his son, after all time was fulfilled, in order that they would be redeemed. He adopts them. He chooses them in Christ. It's all active verbs used by Paul on the, word, on the basis of God's action. And so Paul then continues to say, it's not because of your action, but rather your response to the message and that response is a faith-filled response. What does it mean? It means to trust in the promises of God and to hold God's word and God's promises higher than the words of men. And not only the words of men external to you, but even in, indeed for the Galatians, the words of men as they were wrestling with it. You see, each individual Galatia, a Galatian uh, citizen who had become part of the church in this city was tempted with this doctrine. This doctrine was permitted in the churches. Paul's rebuking them for permitting it. But not every person in Galatia believed this. Not every person just gave into it. Although Paul's using some very strict and scathing words at times, the reason why is he shows through examples, especially if you remember the example with Peter, that this is like an infection. Elevating the words of men due to the fear of man, above the words of God, so as to doubt the promises of God, that is an infection which will not only take over your whole life, it will take over the whole life of the church. I use this analogy, and uh, I've never actually verified this with the, the uh, nurses. We have uh, actually one guy who's training to be a doctor, Tate, over there. Um, we have John Gray right there. One of the, the ideas that I use, the imagery, I hope it's right. If it's wrong, correct me later. Um, <laughs> is that when you have gangrene or sepsis or necrotizing flesh, stuff that's dead even though it's getting a blood supply, that is a terrible situation for a human body. And the only right remedy, apart from like extreme watching and medication, is, is amputation. And it has to be cut off completely because if it isn't, it will actually begin to go, that deadness will begin to be transported by the blood system to other parts of the body. It will infect and take over unless it's stopped. If you ever want to see something like this, just watch one of the old Civil War movies. They cover this in great detail because the doctor you know, comes to the, the soldier and says, I have to take the leg. And if I don't take the leg, it's going to take your life. Now, modern medicine is probably a little bit more quick to save things, but the point is the same. The point is that Paul says, this is like leaven. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, lest it fill the whole loaf. Jesus also said, the leaven of the kingdom is going to fill the whole world. The point is, whatever teaching is entertained, whatever teaching is gains entry and then is permitted to stay, will begin to spread and multiply. If you ever want to see this in action, uh, I'll sit down with you one day and make a sourdough starter. Uh, it's, it's an amazing process, but this little tiny ingredient, which is imperceptible, then as it lives in a medium, takes over and it dominates 
the flavor, the smell. It takes over the host that it's in. This is what Paul is saying, is it has to be cut off. That's why he rebukes Peter to his face publicly, because even some of the Christians began to behave like he, like he did. And so this is what Paul is arguing about. He's saying, you guys are entertaining this doctrine. The entertaining of the doctrine is a problem. It's not just being convinced that I should be circumcised. It's allowing them to have a voice in the community, a voice in the church. And actually, Paul then, from this point in the letter, he begins to make statements like we saw today, cast out the bondwoman and her son. He's, he's, if you understand the analogy or the allegory, as we're going to examine today, he's saying it's time to make a decision. It's time to make a cleaving one way or the other. And so Paul is, Paul is arguing with the Galatians, and he uses a number of means. He first appeals to them as a father. He reminds them of their grace that, they had been, that had been manifest in their conversion. And then he goes on to show how their harmony has been totally disrupted. And then here in chapter 4, he extends the example made, prior to, made in the prior chapter about Abraham's covenant, the promises given to Abraham, and he then uses it to apply it to the church today. If you don't think the Old Testament scriptures are vitally important to how you understand your Christianity, then I would encourage you, what Paul is doing is he's saving the Christianity of the Galatians by using the Old Testament. And for many people, that sounds ridiculous because, you know, the Old Testament, that's the God of anger, and the New Testament is the God of love. But that's not at all the way that God has manifested himself through history. He's been the God of promise, and Paul uses the Old Testament to emphasize that. So he's continuing on with chapter 3. He makes a statement saying that Abraham believed God by promise, and if you believe God by promise, then that's what makes you a child of Abraham. It's not the circumcision. The great debate in the Galatian culture in the church that day is how do we know whether we're in God's family or out of God's family? Do we have to join Israel through circumcision and keeping of the law? Or, as Paul argues, do we have to turn from sin and repent and put our trust in Christ? And that right there is the difference. He's continuing on in that same analogy, and he's basically saying that we were trapped under the law, that we were held captive under the law for a time until something was going to take place. So I just wanted to give that summary because that, that context is going to massively shape what we're going to look at in Galatians 4 today. The first thing I want to look at is what Paul says here is continuing with the theme of chapter 3, we were, we were held by the law as a guardian until such a time. And then Paul says, not until we obtain maturity on our own, but rather when God deemed appropriate. This is a massively important thing to see because this is a continuing reference of Paul saying the gospel is God's action. It's not my action, it is God's action. So I want to look at the incarnation, the act of Jesus coming in the flesh as the thing or the, the time-bound uh, time activity of God to bring maturity to his people. I want to look at the nature of our adoption as being done by the triune God. We serve a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
In so much of the American church today, you will hear phrases like this, it's all about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is a narrowing of the scope of the New Testament teaching. It is not just all about Jesus. And, that, and saying that is not a maligning of Jesus. Our faith is a Trinitarian faith. And it's important that you understand that because if you are just simply focused on Jesus one day and you do not understand what you've been given today, you are missing out on a great aspect of the promise fulfilled. The promise has been fulfilled and that promise has been sent into our hearts. I want to look at Paul's concern for Galatia as he's been doing in the letter over and over again. He appeals to them in multiple ways. First, he appeals to them as children and friends, and then he begins to actually make an appeal that is a little bit stronger. It, it's, it's more of a, uh, it's not mocking, but it's a, it's a pointing out the deep theological error of the Judaizers and their teaching such that he would begin to wake them up. Uh, and then finally, I want to look at the allegory of the women as he uses it. And this is where we're going to see the Old Testament reading done in a Christological fashion or, or reading the Old Testament to understand things about Christ and about Christ's people, not presuming that they are things that relate to other people, but understanding that these are things that relate to me and the rest of the church is going to be vitally important. And like I said, most of the time when we appeal to the Old Testament today, we do it contrasting, and Paul always does it comparing. That's a very, very important distinction as we're going to see today. So the first thing I want to look at is this notion of what Paul is describing as this time period in which we were held in captivity or held as waiting for maturity by the law until such a time as God sees fit. So he's continuing this theme of the unfolding plan of redemption. God first gives the promise to Abraham, and then because of sin, because sin was ravaging the, the whole world, he gives the law to the nation of Israel, and that law contains both the moral law and cultural prohibitions to mark out and create a continuity of people throughout time such that they were commanded not to intermarry with the other nations, that was a, a huge aspect of their law, but also not to worship like those other nations, not to engage in the compromises of them. And so the cultural provisions and moral law are all contained within what we might call the capital L law, the law of God. And so Paul is saying this law was given for a time until faith would, would appear. Is he saying the rest of the law has no meaning? No, not at all, as he appeals to the law in other places in the New Testament. He says the law is holy. The law is good if one uses it in a righteous way. And so Paul is saying that this was a temporary thing to teach us of our need for someone who could deliver us from not the law, but the flesh which is unable to do the law. And as a shortcut, he sometimes then says our inability to do the law. You see, the problem isn't the law. The law is God's holy, righteous standard of ethical behavior and true human living. That standard is perfect, and we, as those who are tainted by sin, trapped in the flesh, we cannot do the works of the law with a pure heart. Therefore, we can't do the works of the law at all. 
When you look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. And then we read Paul and say, oh, well, we've been set free from the law. So Jesus was just saying, I haven't yet set you free from the law. I haven't yet abolished the law. That happened at the cross. Brothers and sisters, that is heresy. The law, the moral implications of the law still remains in effect for Christians, but not so that we have to do it, but so that we can. I was reading in in one of the old Puritan books uh, that I like to reference from time to time, and one of them, one of the Puritan uh, pastors had this to say about the law before and after Christ. First, the law said, do this and you will live. And now in Christ, he says, live and you will do this. And that's the total change in what Paul is saying. We were trapped under, unable to do it. But now, because we've been trapped under, Christ came and was born under the law. Why was he born under the law? So that he could deliver those who were under the law. This is a beautiful thing. He says, Uh, that as long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul uses this analogy saying that young men are not given things until they are older men at the date whenever they become 13 in Jewish culture, right? You have your bar mitzvah. you're, You're considered an adult. You enter into a trade. In our culture, we, we do, in Ohio, 15 and a half. You can start to drive with the permission of parents or someone older than 25 years old. And then at 16, you can get a license. At 14, you can work, but never mind. And at 18, you're, at 18, you're able to vote, buy cigarettes, gamble on the lottery. And then once you're 21, you're able to drink. The point is, he's making an analogy that there are, there are markers... Of, of maturity. There are dates appointed by the father over his son. He makes this analogy, but then watch how he totally demolishes this analogy. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. But notice what doesn't happen. It's not when we stood up at 13 in the synagogue and read from the law. It's not when we passed the driver's test and were able to drive. It was when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. The analogy is totally imperfect, and I think on purpose. The point is, we as the people of God, corporately seen as one son of God, we didn't reach maturity. Let me just explain this really quickly in case you're thrown by this language. The, the people of God in the scriptures are routinely called God's son. Paul makes this analogy through the context of covenant history. That is, God's people, as seen by their covenant head, are seen as God's son. Uh, if you look at the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 3, Luke's recording the genealogy of Christ. He gets to uh, Abel, or sorry, Seth, then Adam. He says, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That isn't a rival claim to the triune son, that is the word of God, eternally begotten before all ages. It is not a claim against Jesus' divinity or exclusivity in his sonship, but rather it is as their covenant head. That is to say, Adam had a responsibility to live before God as his man, his, his son, if you will. Uh, when, when God is rebuking Israel as a nation, he does it through the prophet Hosea. And Hosea, as he's contemplating the 
sin that the people of God are going into and their exile, God is mourning through Hosea saying, when Israel was a boy, when Israel was a child, I taught him how to walk. If you ever want to get a good crying session in during your quiet time, put on some nice worship music and enter into Hosea chapter 11. It's a beautiful thing because what God does is he says, I'm his father. He's not allowed to run away. I was the one who taught him how to walk. I have a claim on this one. I, this is my boy, and he's rebelled against me. And, and he's, he's in turmoil. You see the heart of the father here in turmoil over the fact that their sins have brought exile and judgment upon them, and yet he does not want to give them up. It's one of the amazing aspects of the, prophet of, uh, or the book of Hosea and that prophet's life. Nevertheless, the point is that this is language to talk about the people of God. So what Paul is doing is he's saying the people of God, considered as a group, considered under their federal head, whether it be Adam, Abraham, David, whoever, they are considered to be God's son, little s, son. And when the fullness of time came, God didn't raise that son up to maturity on their own, but did it through the sending of his son, capital S, son. That is what he's saying, that God's people don't arrive to maturity on their own, but when the father had chosen to send the son, that is when, he says, the fullness of time came. Notice the logic here. He says in verse two, until the date set by his father, verse four, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son. Does that mean when the people of God were really ready for the sending of Jesus? If you know anything about the history of Jesus and the Gospels, it tells us that actually this was one of the darkest points in the history of the people of God. That is to say, the people of God were so filled with mixture that when God came near in the person of Christ, they committed a sin greater than even taking the fruit from the tree that Adam did in killing God in the flesh. When you think about the person against whom is is sinned, that is the greatest sin of human history. And as we've seen before, paradoxically, the greatest thing to ever happen. The point is that Paul's saying that maturity arrives in redemptive history, not when the people of God finally get their act together, but when God chooses to sovereignly send his son to come and to take on flesh. And then Paul begins to unpack what verse 4 means. Paul describes Christ's birth in a dual fashion. He describes it two ways. Born under a woman, or born of a woman. Born under the law. And the reason he does this is because, as the New Testament shows us time and again, that Christ had to be made like his brothers in all ways, or in all respects, so that he could be a proper atonement. The justice of God requires that those for whom atonement is made, that they be accurately represented by their substitute. This is why Christ does not help angels, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us. Because the angels aren't bearers of God's image, but rather God sovereignly chose men, these weak, dirt-made creatures who breathe some air and then expire. He chose these to bear his image, and then sovereignly condescended by coming as the Son. Christ's commissioning, therefore, was done for this reason, in order to redeem us from the penalty. Why was Christ born under the law? So that he could endure the condemnation of the law. 
That was why he was born under the law. Not just so that he could perfectly fulfill it. That is true. Christ perfectly obeyed the law. He was the only Israelite to obey the law, completely doing the work of the Father. But it is not only to do the demands of the law, but it is to, by the nature of his substitution for us, to bear the penalty of the law on our behalf. That is why Christ had to be born of a woman, born under the law. Having adopted us, therefore, through his Son, who made satisfaction for us, God continues to unfold his redemptive plan. This is where most presentations or teachings on the gospel stop. Jesus Christ came, died, rose again, and then we don't talk about the ascension, trust in him. That's where most gospel presentations end, but the gospel continues. Jesus then ascended. In Acts chapter 1, we see the recording in Luke 24. We also see it very briefly. Jesus ascends, and after that, he tells his people to wait, and then the Father and the Son send the Spirit to the church. He sends the Spirit for that reason to a Uh, not only adopt them, but to confer that inheritance upon them. Seeing the triune shape of our salvation, that is the triune fingerprint of, if you will, God is demonstrating that our involvement is alien. And I think this is Paul's intention again. He's saying, you not only didn't choose Christ, but also you can't send the Spirit to yourself. You can't send what you don't have. And so the gospel is not just a a message of Christ's death and resurrection, but it's also the announcement that God by his spirit has conferred his love upon you, and you are now able to express your adoption, calling God Father, who you were formerly estranged to. Not only have you been adopted from the house of futility into a house of righteousness, but you've been given gifts and blessings and a promised inheritance. And then Paul uses this word, as heirs. Verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. You see how beautiful this is. At the end of chapter 3, Paul's arguing, because you look like Abraham, resembling the same faith that Abraham had, you're Abraham's sons. You're part of this one offspring that, that God promised to give to Abraham. But not only that, by becoming part of this offspring, by becoming united to Christ, that has been manifested in your adoption. What does that mean? It means even though I'm still waiting for my death and resurrection at the end of the ages, today I am adopted by God. By faith in Christ, he has sent his spirit. I've been adopted by him and I have a pledge of the inheritance. As he says in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave. What are you no longer a slave to? Those things which you formerly were uh, captivated by held captive by. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. What do we inherit? According to what Paul tells the Corinthians, in Christ you inherit everything. What an amazing promise. So God sent his son that we might become sons. That's how Paul argues in verse 4 and 5. And then he sends the spirit of his son that we might become heirs of him. Jesus Christ, as Psalm Psalm 2 tells us, is the heir of God. He is the one who receives everything in creation. He is the firstborn or the one who has the right to inherit. 
And therefore, by the spirit of his son, Paul shows an aim. He shows a particular end or goal for the sending of the spirit. The reason Paul uses this phrase, the spirit of his son, is because he's trying to show that the father wants to make the little s sons look like evermore the capital S son. That is, the Spirit's job and role is not just to cause wonderful senses of God's presence and wonderful times of worship or prayer or reading God's word. And believe me, those are a wonderful gift. Knowing God's presence is part of our inheritance. But it's not just to stop at external experiences. It's character transformation. It's life and destiny transformation such that I was going one way before Christ, and now after I've placed my faith in Christ and been transformed by the Spirit, I now am I'm, I'm going a completely different direction. I'm now looking forward to being an heir to inherit from God. And what I'm inheriting from God is not just everything in the world, although that will happen in the new heavens and the earth, new earth fully manifested, but it's God himself. I'm an heir of God. That means the down payment of the Spirit, the down payment is in like nature to the other payments. Think about this for a second. When you pay a mortgage or when you buy, when you buy a mortgage, you first put a down payment, and usually that down payment is some form of cash. It's either cash, cold hard cash, it's either a check, or it's a wire transfer from your bank. But guess what? When you go to make the mortgage payments, you're not sending them like pizzas or stuff you bought at Walmart or or things you handcraft, you have to send them cash. That's the point that Paul's making. He says, you've received a down payment. He argues that way in the book of Ephesians. And that down payment is in like nature to the rest of the things you're receiving from God. You get more of God in the gospel. So, filled with this knowledge of their great salvation and calling, that is their destiny, where they're being called to, to receive from God himself, Paul is concerned that they're rejecting this adoption to return to slavery. Remember, he says, you were held captive until Christ was revealed, but now that Christ and faith has been revealed, you've been set free, and you're no longer slaves, but now you're sons. So then he begins to argue, so what are you doing going back to slavery? He's terrified, and he thinks that they have rejected the gospel, that they have forsaken Christ by their returning to those things which cannot bring any peace or, or life. Verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, and, and I love it when Paul does this, he then corrects himself, but he, he doesn't scratch out the other words. He left them there. And the reason why is because he's saying, I'm speaking in a human way, but here I'm going to show you the reality. We think often that I have come to know God, but what Paul says is, or rather, God has come to know me. That's what he's saying. That's what the gospel is. It's the announcement that in Christ, God has come near to you and he wants to reconcile you to himself. Now that you have been known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? I I just want to point out that that phrase is kind of perplex and we're going to see that it's actually quite clear. But what he's saying there is, if you've been set free from these things, and you're now a son, if, you, if you've been re- revealed to be a son by, by Christ coming, by you putting faith in Christ, by the Spirit coming, and now you're able to express Abba Father to God, how can you go back to those things which formerly kept you enslaved? 
He then points out that they're observing days and months and seasons and years. He's not talking about with a clock. He's talking about religious observation, religious keeping of the days. Verse 11, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He, what, is it, what is someone who is laboring over someone in vain? It's a stillbirth, right? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you guys look like you're dead on arrival. This is a terrifying thing that you've begun to listen to Christ. You've begun to place your hope and trust in Christ. You've even had a manifestation of the Spirit, and now you, you are rejecting everything that you formerly claimed to hold dear, that, that was bearing fruit in you. This is what Paul is saying, that these weak and worthless elementary things are the laws which cannot profit. He, he argues this way in Colossians 2.20. He uses the exact same phrase, uh, the weak and worthless things. He uses a phrase that's almost word for word, the elementary principles of the world. What does he mean? He means that in the world itself, the world, the sin-filled world, not the, the earth of the world, the world has a teaching which is, if we work real hard, we can get back into the garden. And that teaching, that worthless elementary principles are do this, do that. That's what he means by elementary. He means like, you know, first, you know, you learn to take some steps and then you maybe jog or jump every once in a while and then you build on top of that and eventually you can buy your way to favor in, in God. Paul's saying that's worthless, it's ineffective and it's dead on arrival. It is completely unable to produce anything of worth. It is worthless and weak. It is powerless. Their observation of these days is more than mere noting. It's not just kind of saying, oh, look, there was Passover again this year. The Galatians had begun to celebrate Passover so as to think that they were keeping the law as required of them or supposedly required of them to be able to please God. This is totally different than a mere cultural observation of seasons or using seasons as a tutorial. For example, in our church, we use the church calendar. And the reason we use the church calendar is it is a regular schedule in which we remind ourselves of the significant events of the life of Christ. His coming, the anticipation of his coming, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the sending of the Spirit. But we do not have to do that. I hope you understand that, that the observation of the church calendar that we have here is totally different than what he's talking about in their observing of days, weeks, months, and years. The reason why is because during those festivals, those festivals were given to be a foreshadowing of Christ himself, and those festivals commanded sacrifices. And Paul's arguing that the continual use of sacrifices after the one final sacrifice of Christ is to reject Christ. He's concerned with them because they're observing these things so as to be justified by their observation. Paul expresses concern clearly. He does not mince words. Oh, that the church of Christ would redeem the quality of loving the truth. We hear so much junk in the church today that minces words and, and dances around complex, supposedly complex issues when God's word has spoken clearly and the boldness exemplified by Paul is, is almost shocking to us, but I would say that it shouldn't be as shocking as it might be. Paul is using 
the most precise language, the most clear language to communicate the severity of their error. He says, I'm concerned that you are like a dead child on the delivery table. And that imagery is shocking. That imagery, I think Paul uses it for a specific point. He's using it to pierce through the calloused hard-heartedness of the Galatian church that had begun to drink of this doctrine of adding to Christ. He instructs them with genuineness and he embodies the incarnation in his ministry. I think Paul is saying, not only were you being given some sort of manifestation of the grace of God, but I myself was like Christ to you. Look at this clearly in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. I also have become as you are. Look at the poetry here. What are the Judaizers saying? They're saying you need to become like us but they're not willing to become like the Galatians. And Paul is saying the gospel is completely different. The gospel is, I, Paul, have become like you. And because of that, you can now become like me. Why, why is he saying it that way? He's saying it's a, it's a ripple effect of the incarnation. How did the gospel happen? God sent his son, born, under a woman, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And he's saying become like me because I have become like you. And he's pointing out the heresy and hypocrisy of the, of the Judaizers. They're saying all you Galatian Gentile Christians, if you really want to get to Jesus, if you want Christianity 2.0, if you will, you need to actually be circumcised. You need to become like one of us in order that you can become part of this club or this clique. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first pet peeve of mine is that when going through the book of Galatians, people spend hours on this subject. Was Paul sick? Was he not sick? It's very clear. Paul was sick. He had some sort of problem with his eyes. He then mentions it. And then at the end of the book, he says, I write this with my own hand, the greeting that he gave. Um, See what large letters I'm writing to you with. He's he's making an allusion to the fact that Paul probably at this point had some sort of problem with his eyes. Whether it was temporary, whether it was written at the end of his life, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is, you know that I preach to you even in weakness. What he's saying is, these Judaizers are coming in and they're making a show of the flesh. They're using boldness. They're using uh, you know, puffed up human expressions. They're using words of wisdom, so-called wisdom. They're using eloquent modes of speech. But you know that when I came to you, I thought the gospel was important enough that I was willing to look foolish and to preach in front of you while sick and ailed. Think about that. Think about getting up in front of the Galatian church and coming and bringing the gospel while, you're, while you've got pneumonia. Or while you're blind and you were an apostle who was first blind with Christ and then had your sight restored. I mean, imagine the irony and the potential for shame there. Paul's saying, These Judaizers are coming in here. They're making a show of the flesh. They're boasting in their power. They're boasting in their so-called authority. And yet, you know, when I came and brought you the pure gospel, I didn't make a showing of the flesh. But rather, I preached to you in honesty. Verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel, that word is messenger, as an angel of God, Christ Jesus himself. What an amazing picture of the incarnation that through Paul's ministry, he said, I came to you in bodily weakness. 
I bore weakness just like Christ bore weakness. And when I came to you, I didn't bring myself, exalting myself before you, but I, I did it in such a way that even though it was hard for you, I made sure to put the pure gospel in front of you. Captivating. The Judaizers' hypocrisy, therefore, is manifest in their behavior. They're doing the complete opposite of what Paul's doing. He says, verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? He's saying, there were marks of grace on your, on your church, and now that I've left and these other people have come in, what, where's the fruit gone? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. He's probably referring to, to the fact that in his in-person preaching, people in that church said, you know what, Paul, just keep going. It, it's not that bad. This is too important. You know, he's, he's saying that they, were, they had evidences of grace and reception. They had evidences of hospitality and love for Paul in his weakness. They had the fruit of the Spirit. They had gentleness and kindness and meekness and love. And now that he's gone for a little bit and the Judaizers have come in, look at what's happened. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Although Paul doesn't mention it in this uh, book, he mentions it in other letters, that there were oftentimes in these churches when other false apostles come in, they would throw, the church would throw off Paul's authority. And apparently from this verse, he's, he's kind of hinting at the fact like, hey, I've heard the rumors of what you're saying about me in Galatia. I've, word has gotten to me that I'm a byword, that I'm disdained among you. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17, they, the Judaizers, make much of you, but for no good purpose, they want to shut you out that you might make much of them. It's the complete opposite of the gospel. And the reason why is because the gospel which you preach is the gospel which you will live. Now, you will never live the gospel in the same purity and clarity as what we're called to preach it with. Nevertheless, it will become manifest and clear. Christ said clearly, you will know them by their fruits. And what Paul is saying is the Galatian fruit has become rotten. They've turned on Paul and reject him, whereas formerly they received him. These Judaizers have become worse than a high school clique. Think about, uh, if, you, if you've been to high school, if you went to a high school, uh, you might remember there are certain groups, and they're the in-groups, and most of the time you're on the out-group. Why? Because the power dynamic doesn't work if the group gets too large. If you've got 10 popular people, you might be able to have 100 people who wish they could one day get in that group. But if you make the whole school popular, the whole system of the fear of man and pride of man falls apart. That's what he's saying. He's saying, they make much of you so that you would make much of them. They puff you up so that you would flatter them. That's what he's saying. They're, they exclude you so that they would be able to be seen as the real Christians, the super Christians. Paul entreats them at first. He makes some analogies. He, he appeals to them. He appeals to the fact that, hey, Galatia, your fruit looks rotten now. You've turned on me who birthed you. Nevertheless, he, I, I love you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, what has happened? And now he's, he's, so, he's spoken softly, and now he's actually going to issue what I think is, if you hear it right, is actually quite a strong rebuke. 
In verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, just a point of clarification here. When we think of the law, a lot of times we think of the beginning of the utterance of the Ten Commandments and forward. But in that day, and still to this day it should be the case, people considered the law to be the writings of Moses. It, it wasn't just the giving of the law after the escape from, ex, uh, from Egypt. It was actually all of the writings of Moses. Moses wrote the book of Genesis and included the history of Abraham. And Paul is saying, you who seek to be established by the law, the Torah, the first five books of the laws of Moses, um, you who seek to be established by Torah, do you not listen to Torah? And what he's doing is he's saying the law, he appealed that way in the prior chapter, the law came 430 years afterward. He goes back to Abraham again and he says, not only that, not only did the law come after the promise and it can't nullify the promise, but what happened to Abraham with his two sons should have served as a model for you. What he's saying is, the writings of the law give us a uh, the uh, give us a recording of the law and tell us of the story of Hagar and Sarah. And when he asks if they have listened to the law, he is revealing that he is expecting them to listen to the law in this manner. This is why reading the Old Testament is so vitally important. It is not just about Christians before Christ. It has deep application to the Christians throughout time. Because as Paul is arguing is, the Christians today at Galatia who are trusting in faith are the same as Abraham, trusting in faith in the promise. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. What is Paul doing? He's appealing to history. He's appealing to the way that God revealed the promise. First, he gives Abraham a promise. He says, through your seed, the world will be blessed. I will multiply you. I will make you a great nation. What happens? Year goes by, year goes by, year goes by. Again and again and again. And then Sarah gets this amazing idea. I don't have an heir yet. I don't have a child. I will give Hagar to Abram. And at this point, Paul then calls that action one born of the flesh. Both of the boys were humans. Don't, don't miss what Paul's saying. They're both born in the flesh, but Ishmael was born of the flesh. Paul is appealing to human effort. We see this in Genesis 16. Hagar conceives through Sarah's uh, manipulation of the situation, attempting to manifest the promise herself. That's again, the theme of, of the book of Galatians. But what happens when God comes near is when Sarah gives birth. In, in Genesis 22, if you look at these first three verses of that chapter, it says, now at the appointed time, God came near. Isn't that amazing? So, Paul then uses a rebuke to the Galatians and he appeals to them who are trying to be justified by the law, and he interprets this scenario, this history, as an allegorical fashion. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. And, and by saying maybe, he's saying this is the right interpretation. These women are two covenants. Now, 
by saying that, of course they historically happened. Paul's not saying that Sarah and Hagar didn't actually happen. Because if he was saying that, the whole thrust and point of his, and power of his argument would be, it would be gone, right? You're appealing to something that didn't even happen, right? So using allegorical interpretation to understand what Paul is talking about doesn't weaken his argument, it strengthens it. Because what it's saying is, it's the God who has operated with a people throughout time was operating the same way even back then. He then says, it may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, that's where the law was given, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. You see what he's doing here? He's going from allegory, and then you might accuse him of doing just some sort of free association. But actually what he's doing is he's saying, this nation, Jerusalem, or this, this capital, Jerusalem, is a contrasting capital to the other Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 25, present, uh, the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. I love the harmony of the New Testament. John sees on the island of Patmos, he sees a heavenly Jerusalem coming down. He sees it in process. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this idea as the, the temple which has come. He, he then goes, the writer of Hebrews says, you haven't come to a mountain which can be touched, Sinai, but you have come to the mountain assembly of the spirits made perfect. Feastal gathering. Everything realized in Christ. They have come to. God was speaking to his people through his word throughout time, throughout history, through real events, and he requires them to interpret them according to his nature, character, and purpose, according to the way of Christ. Paul extends this allegory to create understanding of their own experience. So Paul has just utilized history. He's interpreted allegorically. He's then made an analogy between Sinai and Jerusalem, which aren't the same place, if you're not Sure of that, they're not the same place. And then he goes on to say, this is that Jerusalem, but we are of the heavenly Jerusalem, we're of the real Jerusalem. And then he goes on to give understanding. As in, he tells the Galatians this history, he interprets it correctly, and then he applies it to them so that they would understand what they're going through. Verse 29, but just as at that time, so also now, he who was born according to the flesh according to the will of the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. He's saying, God's operating the same, yesterday, today, forever, in the future. Verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. What is Paul saying? He's making an appeal for the perseverance of the saints and the purity of the church. He's saying, it's time, Galatia. I've argued with you through this letter. You now need to make a decision. Cast out the slave woman and her children. What is he calling them to do? He's saying, do not put up with the Judaizing heresy any longer. Paul is not arguing, by the way, to treat slaves poorly. If you read him saying that, you're missing the whole point of what he's saying. He's saying that this, this heresy, which is which has been breeding among you, ought to be cut off and it ought to be cast out. Uh, verse 5 is, or excuse me, chapter 5, he's going to use that same language, the cutting off language. 
verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Why is this important? It's because we were bought with a price. We were bought with Jesus Christ's precious blood. And to claim that we need to be circumcised or to keep the law on our own in order for Jesus Christ's crucifixion, death, resurrection to apply to us is to totally abuse and malign the purity of the gospel. It is to spit in Christ's face quite clearly. That is what Paul is saying. And he's saying, it's now time, Galatia. Do not entertain the heresy any longer. And I would tell you, if you have been listening to these sermons as we've been going through the series of Galatians, and you're thinking to yourself at all, you know, man, I do the same thing like the Galatians in these ways. I try to clean myself up before I come to Christ. I try to work out my circumstance in order that I can first get clean before I appeal to God. I try to repair my life. Then I would, I would say that is the Holy Spirit teaching you and talking to you, saying you are like the Galatians adding to the work of Christ. And what I hear Paul saying in these chapters is, forsake that way of living. If you are truly children of the promise, which indeed Paul, Paul argues in this verse, so brothers, we aren't children of the bondwoman, we are children of the slave woman, then what it means for us individually is don't give any place to the heresies of the enemy, whether it be Satan himself or an, an angel so-called, of so-called light or some demonic spirit or some teaching of men. Do not entertain in your heart and in your mind an approach to God which, which requires you to clean yourself up or to add to in any way the work of Jesus. That's what I hear Paul saying in this letter. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give us the freedom in Jesus Christ that that was purchased for us. We thank you that you sent your son to redeem us as we by the corruption of the flesh were trapped under the claim of the law and unable to do it and only deserving just penalty. Father, we thank you for your sovereign wisdom, which at the right time when you determined you sent your son to redeem us. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to hear the the words that Paul wrote to the Galatian church as alive today. I pray that you would send your spirit and root out from us and cut off from us anything which would seek to add to the worth of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would become, as your son said in the Gospels, that we would become like little children to enter the kingdom, that we would totally and completely receive and be dependent upon you, Father. Amen.